Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Hulse, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine, moderates a discussion on the impact of reprints on the pulp market. It was recorded on August 4, 2006, at PulpCon 35 in Dayton, Ohio. Joining at our publishers John Gunnison, Tom Roberts, Rich Harvey, and Neil Meekham. Here is Ed. Okay, our topic for tonight is the boom in pulp reprints and its effect on the hobby of pulp collecting. Uh, I thought about having a panel like this because when I began coming to PulpCon about 10 years ago, um, I noticed then we were just starting to, to see a lot of reprints. Now, there's nothing new about reprint pulp stories. It's been going on since the 70s. And some members, like longtime members like Will Murray, who's here, and Bob Weinberg, were instrumental in doing a lot of pulp reprints. But just recently, over the last eight to ten years, there's been a real explosion in the number of reprints and in the style of them. Some of them full count facsimiles, exact replicas of the pulps themselves. Others are completely reset type, sometimes with original illustrations, sometimes with new ones. Then you've got the chapbook format, the small five by eights and you have expensive deluxe hardcover editions. But all in all, there's probably more reprinting going on now of the pulps than any time since the early 60s when we had the big uh, paperback boom, and we had Burroughs and Howard and the Doc Savages and everything coming out uh, in mass market paperback editions. Now, there's a bunch of reasons why this is happening, which we'll get into, and it mostly has to do with technology. It has to do with the uh, advent of scanner technology, which makes it easier to copy the pulp pages. It has to do with the proliferation of print-on-demand printers who can print short runs so that a, a publisher no longer has to print a thousand or fifteen hundred copies of a book just to make it feasible if he doesn't want to. He can print in smaller quantities. These have all made it very easy for uh, avocational publishers and hobbyist publishers to get in and, and bring some of the old pulps back to life. So our panelists here, I specifically wanted on, uh, on this panel because not only are they all publishers who are uh, specializing in various forms of reprinted pulp stories, they are also collectors and in some cases dealers as well. So as we discuss this big boom in reprinting and how it is affecting the hobby, we've got guys who are more or less on the ground, so to speak, who know it from every angle. So to introduce the panelists, uh, to my right, your left, John Gunnison, who many of you know, PulpCon regular of many years. He is a well-known dealer whose prices are occasionally reasonable. <laughs> but more importantly, he is Adventure House Publishing. He has uh, done, what was it, Pulp, uh, Pulp Digest first? Pulp Review. Pulp, Pulp Review. And High Adventure, which is now up to 90-some? 89. 89. He's also doing the G8s, which are licensed reprints. Um, and he knows the pulp world in and out. Next to John is Tom Roberts, who is the publisher of Black Dog Books. He specializes in reprints mostly in the chapbook format, that 5.5 by 8.5 format. And Tom has reprinted a lot of very, very obscure adventure stories uh, things that are kind of outside the realm of the most popular stuff like the Howard and the, the Hero Pulp kind of stuff. Tom goes in for more esoteric adventure fiction. 
To my left, Rich Harvey, the publisher of Bold Venture Press. Uh, he is the uh, he has been publishing Spider reprints. Previously, uh, he was also involved in another reprint project, uh, doing some of the Zorro books. And Rich is very active. He's also an active collector. And on the far end, Neil Meacham of Girasol Collectibles. Neil is another familiar face to those of you who've been coming to PulpCon for some years. And in addition to being a, a experienced dealer, he's now publishing facsimile reprints, which are exact replicas of the pulps. Uh, and and like all of the the uh, projects up here of these panels are very much be uh, very much desirable. So to, to get started here, I want to ask the panelists, and let's start with John and work our way down. Are you finding that the, the ready availability of reprints with the vast variety of material that's now being reprinted over these last six, eight, ten years, uh, are we really uh, satisfying people who are just interested in reading the stuff, or is it enhancing the demand for the collecting of the actual pulps themselves, or some combination in between. So John, you want to start? I hope it sort of does both. Um, my model is basically to put out stuff that you wouldn't find um, even on dis most displays at PulpCon. Um, obviously, spices and saucy movies and you know, uh, that material you don't find very often, but I'll go for things like Secret Service stories and man stories and stuff. Quality of the fiction is probably not that phenomenal, but it is something that you wouldn't find. So instead of spending three or four hundred dollars for a book, you can pay fourteen ninety-five and get a gander at it for yourself. Um, my idea was 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 to give someone the ability to read some of this stuff and make a, a choice whether or not they liked it for themselves. Um, and I'm really happy though that it is print on demand that that allows me to do this because personally. Uh, after building or having built a 12 foot by 32 foot shed in my backyard just to fill up the back stock of High Adventure and Pulp Reviews and all the other books that I've done because I don't have space anymore in my house um, because having to buy a thousand copies from the printer and only selling 750 or 800 it's amazing after 89 publications for High Adventure how many 89 times 200 extra copies Adds up quite a, in, in, in someone's uh, house, but anyway, Tom. Yeah, I would second what uh, John would say. I think with the, uh, particularly with the facsimiles, it provides an opportunity for people. Um, uh, you know, whether you're on a, a limited budget or whether you have concern about damaging an item that you may be pay a, a higher expenditure for, and the spices or some of the more obscure titles that I think uh, people are more. Uh, uh, buying more of the, the facsimile and reprint material uh, because the material is accessible, um, much as John was saying. Well, but just to piggyback on that, if you if you think about all the pulp reprints that came out in the 60s and 70s, it was all hero-driven, whether Conan or Doc Savage or, or Tarzan or any of that stuff. Now all the reprints, like what Tom does, some of these forgotten writers, or like John Betancourt does with Wildside, a lot of forgotten writers that were very good, but because they were hero, a lot of the publishers wouldn't, you know, wouldn't bother with them. And paperback publishers. Right. Rich? Uh, repeat that question again. I, I forgot if I was listening to those guys. What, the editor of all Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Short Attention Span Harvey, we were saying uh, uh, 
what what does the the ready availability of reprints is it is it has it stimulated the demand for the pulps themselves in your view? Well, it's difficult to say because when I started doing the spider back in 1997 with Cat uh we had people who were had the original spider pulps and they said, "Oh, I don't need the reprints." And then there were people saying. I'll buy the reprints and maybe I'll sell some of these pulps before you reprint them. Uh, there were definitely people on one side of the fence or the other. Uh, I, I think for some people the pulps do stimulate some interest, uh, the reprints, but, uh, but I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> Neil, have you anything to add? <laughs> I think the reprints do serve the purpose of, of making things available to people who aren't familiar with it in the fashion that they can afford. And for many of us in a certain age bracket, those reprints like paperbacks and other things that were out in the 60s and 70s were our first introduction to the pulps. Many of us hadn't seen the pulps before that, and so we got started with them by seeing those and then wanting to chase down the originals. So I think the reprint market does serve that effect. The only thing I'm concerned about is to how broad that spectrum is, because the reprints are largely only available through the pulp community already. Some of the stuff is distributed through Diamond and gets out into comic stores, but a lot of it is not stuff that is out right in front of the average person, like for example out in Walmart or out in Barnes & Noble or anything like that. So I don't think we're reaching the world at large with the stuff, but I think we are getting people who would be interested in it, who are maybe comic-related, who are now getting a chance to be exposed to the stuff. Well, and that leads into my next question, and I realize that this is tough for you guys to, to be able to quantify, but we know, as John mentioned, you know, uh, if you're printing, a, if you have a large print run, you're not selling that many, you're storing a lot. Do we have any idea, do you have any idea, those of you who are publishing, are, do you think that you're reaching significant numbers of new fans and new readers? In other words, this being a relatively small community, as hobbyist communities go, a lot of us know each other, and many of us know each other. People have been coming here. A lot of people in this room have been coming here for 20 years or more. Are these new reprints reaching a significant number of new people, new buyers, or are we essentially still waiting in that relatively shallow pool of, of, uh, of real pulp aficionados. In other words, how, how broad is the, the reach of these things? I'll admit that we are actually very much, uh, at least I am, I'm only reaching out to those that uh, are on my mailing list, about 4,000 people. Yes, I sell to Diamond and they do buy some stuff. Uh, hopefully that will trickle down because, you know, I remember reading Doc Savage in the 60s and really getting excited and I, in some respects, hope that I can you know, make a new, younger uh, generation become excited with the pulps too. But on the other hand, I'm absolutely frightened by the idea of doing what like Galaxy will do, and we'll go to a Walmart, we'll sell 20,000 copies, whether or not they have a return privilege or not. I can't do that because the, my fear is that I'll go to a big distributor, and some have asked me, and what, what they'll do is they'll say, well, yeah, we'll take 20,000 copies. And within six months, I'll have 18,000 returns, and I still have the print bill to have to pay all those, you know, to, to pay that off, and I'm stuck holding the bag. Um, unfortunately, with all the distribution deals that I've had, um, only Diamond and Bud Plan are the only two that have paid me all of my invoices. Heroes World, which was owned by Marvel, left me owing thousands of dollars. They just decided, well, we can't pay you. 
Uh, same thing with sticks uh, in, in Canada. Same thing with the distributor in, in uh, Great Britain. Same thing with the, uh, the distributor that was out of Chicago, and I'm blanking on the name right now. Had another distributor in Canada who took a bunch of stuff just before he went bankrupt so that he would have stock to sell off, that he would have extra money left over. Um, and I just can't, and I had a distributor who was putting me into Barnes and Nobles, and they would order thousands of copies, or nothing. They wanted to order my entire print one of a thousand, and I said, no, I can't do that, because they did exactly what I feared. And the fact is they take 750, 800 copies, and then within a couple of months, I'd get these little notifications in the mail saying, well, out of the 800 copies we ordered, 650 were returned. And what did I get? Well, what I, what I think some people don't realize, though, is when you say you got returns, what they typically do is they destroy the book right. and they send you an affidavit saying these were returned, meaning you don't even have the book to resell no, anymore. No. Yeah, in fact, cover in fact uh, High Adventure uh, 27, which was my all-star uh, all uh, Western issue, had Elmore Leonard, Lester Dent, uh, Max Brand, and uh, Hugh Cave. And um, I, I met Mr. Leonard uh, months after the book came out, and I, uh, I had to admit to him that the distributor, this, this periodical distributor in San Diego, got the books in the front door. Some guy in the shipping receiving department thought that they were returns and immediately wrote an affidavit for every single one of them in shit Canada. Uh, Tom, your, your reprints are, are uh, more narrowly focused in that you don't go for the the broadly known authors and the broadly known characters, mm -hmm. when you're reprinting obscure stories by, say, J. Allen Dunn or uh, L. Patrick Green, you're naturally appealing to a, a, a relatively sophisticated, and I use the word lightly, relatively sophisticated <laughs> pulp audience. Pulp audience. Have you had much luck in selling your chapbooks to people who have not been exposed to this kind of, of fiction? Uh, there have, since all the things I do are single author titles, there have been uh, some of my titles which have had uh, uh, much larger print runs than the others, and I think it's subjective to either to the author or to the to the um, story type. There was an Edmund Hamilton that I did, which was a pseudo scientific mystery thing uh, that um, I think expanded to many more people that that normally wouldn't buy it. I mean, would buy it uh, outside of here, and a couple of the other things. So I think it's subjective to either the material or the author. Um, some of the better-known authors have, of course, been outside of our immediate crowd. Now, of course, things are, are changing, and uh, in terms of reaching a wider audience, there are a couple of developments which are very exciting. John alluded to one of them. We have some fellows here from Galaxy Press who are, uh, it's a new company, they're exhibiting here for the first time, and they are undertaking a very ambitious project to get a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's Pulp Fiction back into print, including uh, back into print, including a lot of stories that have never been published, right? And uh, what, what I think a lot of people are very, very excited about is Anthony Tolan, who many of you know, has recently uh, licensed the rights from Condé Nast to reprint The Shadow and Doc Savage. Those books, the first volume of his, uh, his Shadow reprints is available here through various dealers, and he is actively soliciting uh, mass market distribution, as are you guys, right? So I think that, that uh, uh, there seems to be a general interest in, in pulp fiction that uh, in some ways it seems to be penetrating the mainstream. The question is how much and how fast will it be and will it really take hold? The shadow in Doc Savage is one thing because they have 
uh, constituencies that are very well established and they have kind of a mass market appeal that kind of transcends the pulp characters that most of us know who the public at large would be unfamiliar with. So it remains to be seen how much of this will, will really take hold. But sir, go ahead. The issue there, I think, is whether we feel that interest in the pulps and the pulp community is expanding, remaining stagnant, or reducing. And that's a difficult question to answer, one which a lot of us are considering. Are we reaching out to new people? Are we seeing new generations of pulp collectors coming into the field? In which case, can they be enticed in, buy things like cheaper reprints to get them started, then get them excited about the pulse? Or is this something that is shrinking or at least stagnant, and therefore we are not really going to reach those people because they're just not there to be reached? Right. And bringing the discussion a little closer to home, so to speak, I mean, since PulpCon is primarily a gathering of people who collect the actual pulps, let's try and, and uh, hone in a little tighter on the actual effect on the hobby itself. Do you guys find um, that there are collectors who, like me, continue to collect pulps but also collect assiduously the, the, the reprints coming out? Is that a sizable group of people? Is it growing? John, start with you. Um, I would say that the, uh, there is an equal number of people who will continue collecting the pulps and collecting the, the reprints being completists. I think we all have a little bit of OCD in, in all of us. Uh, and, you know, somehow the, that third copy of Doc Savage just fits beautifully up on that shelf uh, proudly. <laughs> but I, I must admit, I think I am reaching some new people um, because even with a mailing list, um, I'm getting new names every single month uh, that's ordering off the website. So that tells me, but obviously I can't tell how old these people are. Uh, so I don't know if I'm rekindling a lost love or if I'm actually getting a younger generation as of yet. But no, I, yes, I'm finding a lot of people who will buy both. Uh, in most cases, though, I think the vast majority of the people who are buying my reprints um, don't have copies of Spicy Detective, uh, don't have copies of Saucy Movie, but they would like to have a copy. So it's it's not necessarily uh, quite the same. How about you, Tom? When you when you reprinted L. Patrick Green's major stories, which appeared in the magazine short stories originally, did you find that that's, there was a run on the market for short stories? No, no, there wasn't. There are certain things we do that are more, uh, I won't say self-indulgent, but uh, closer to one's personal taste. But I know when I first started appearing here more than a decade ago, I was, uh, and Rich probably too, about the same time, close to the same age as some of the younger people in attendance, and I haven't necessarily seen a major influx of, of people age 30, so I don't know how many more uh, younger people we may bring into the crowd, but you would hope that since there are no more pulps being made that the reprints do allow uh, some perpetuation to go on with the, with the market and, and the interest. Now, Rich, with the spider, you have the distribution of diamond, which we've referred to several times. For those of you who don't know, diamond is, is uh, I guess, probably the principal comic book distributor at this point. Oh, they cast a ver no. Basically, the only the only one. Okay, well, they cast a very wide net, and they and they reach all kinds of shops. Now, with the spider being distributed by diamond, um, you're probably reaching people. Uh, who would have? Who wouldn't know Jay Allen Dunn from uh, Jay Allen St. John? Right. So, uh, what has your experience been in terms of, of the the feedback that you get from your customers, from Diamond, from their retail customers? I mean, is there a real excitement about this? Or do they really have a sense of who this character is and what he means? Well, 
when I first started doing the spider, uh, the best price quote I could get was for a thousand copies. That was actually the minimum back in 1997 I could get. This was way before Lulu, where they'll do one copy of a book. And uh, Jack Irwin, who's a pulp collector based in South Jersey, I told him we were going to print a thousand copies of the spider, and in a very well-meaning way, he said, "If you could, just do 500," because he said, "You'll probably sell 200, and you'll be stuck with the rest for the rest of your life." Right. Well, we printed a thousand of that first spider, and they didn't sell out in a week. But after about two years, they were all gone. So I think the pulp reprint market of the 1970s, or the market that the fan publisher was hitting in the 70s, is certainly bigger. Or, or maybe it's like astronomy. Maybe those stars have been out there for uh, several millennia and we just could never see them because we never had the right telescope. I think the spider reprints, though, a lot of people would approach me and say, oh, I, I read the spider in the 70s when Pocket Books did them or when the media did them. Or people would contact me and say, oh, I've always heard about the spider. Uh, a lot of people would say they've read Starango's History of the Comics. And of course, he had that long chapter. So some people have an idea of who this character is. Mostly they associate him with the shadow. He's like the shadow, right? And I say, well, kinda. He's a little nuttier than the shadow. There's a much higher body count, but yeah, like the shadow. Well, I must admit, when uh, the publisher of Collector's Press came to, well, uh, in discussion with Frank Robinson and I in reference to pulp culture, and after the book had already been completed and, and we were going to film and, and and, and they finally decided on the, on the title. He asked me in a um, um, <clears throat> phone conversation along with Frank at the same time. He says, so, so how many copies do you think I can sell? And I just sort of laughed and thought, God, my limited ability. I don't think you can sell more than a couple thousand copies. His print book was 10,000. And he sold 10,000 in no time at all. He then went back for another printing of 5,000 and sold most of that. The difference was is that he got great publicity because it was something that people had not seen in a long time. And I always reached out for that holy grail and hoped that I could do the same thing. But you know, it's just it's pictures are one thing, fiction is another. Yeah. And as Diamond has told me in the, my last meeting with him a, a couple of weeks ago uh, on a new project I was pushing them, they said, it's got fiction in it? And yeah, well, we'll order a couple hundred copies. Yeah. Well, part of what we're seeing, too, is that with any collectible, there are always the diehards who have to have the original, if I understood the original question they had mm -hmm. there. And I don't think the reprints are discouraging people who are serious collectors from buying original pulps. In some cases, we're seeing people who are buying a reprint of something expensive to have it as a placeholder or as a reading copy, but they're still chasing the originals. But a large portion of the market for reprints are, as John said before, people who would not buy those pulps anyway. So I don't think it's I don't think the reprints are causing people not to buy pulps, nor are they necessarily promoting people to buy more pulps. It's perhaps two sides of the coin, and they're you know they're they're not overlapping to a great extent. Well, Neil, you're also a, a dealer as well as a publisher, as is John. What what is uh, what have you seen in terms of the pricing? Now, a lot of the the books that you do, you get into the spices, which as we know are very pricey pulps. Mm -hmm. And John has done some of the spices and the saucies as well. Have you seen any pressure downward on the prices of, of the originals? No, not really at all. The, um, again, the people who are buying the reprints aren't necessarily looking for those pulps in original form. Um, also, your reprint doesn't cost a proportionate amount 
of the original item that you're buying. So you can buy a reprint of a $1,000 book just as easily as you can buy a reprint of a $100 book, and your reprint costs the same. But in terms of the original pulps, the availability is so limited on a lot of the scarcer items that I don't think it's really, I don't think it's really doing any harm. People who are collecting the early weird tales, for example, are not going to look at a reprint and go, that'll do me, I'll just put that on the shelf. They want the originals because of the, the collectability of the originals themselves. So we're not seeing that pushing prices down. But in, this, in, in the other way, though, um, I have found that because Doc Savage has been reprinted so many times, and I saw this earlier with the Avenger when they reprinted every Avenger, the number of people really looking who might have started off saying, yeah, I really like to collect Doc Savage, but didn't have a lot of money, they weren't buying, they were just buying the reprints. They weren't buying the original pulps. And I think that there is, although the prices haven't come down dramatically, but the, the number of people wanting to buy certain books, I think, has reduced. Possibly true, but we also get into the material is getting to be somewhat dated, particularly some of the hero characters are not what you would consider to be the current style. So I think they're, the time lapse is also getting to be a problem in terms of what people who are coming into the market looking for reading material now are actually looking for versus the stuff that's in the pulps. I agree that stuff that hasn't been reprinted several times is probably not as of much interest as something that they haven't seen before, but we're facing other issues as well as far as people are Because to hand somebody who's maybe in their 20s now a Doc Savage and say, read this, you'll love it, are they going to or not? You know, it's, it's hard to say. Well, let's presuppose, looking forward, that, that all of the reprints will stimulate a certain amount of interest in pulp as, uh, as a whole, and that certain, well, let's also stipulate that certain genres or certain characters will do better in reprint than others. Um, what I'm wondering is, is, if we try and gaze into a crystal ball, assuming that the plethora of reprints uh, just continues to expand and there's more and more of them, um, and they don't need to sell 1,000 or 1,500 copies to break even with print-on-demand, will that, will that be enough to satisfy the reader? Uh, do we run a risk, and, and I ask this question as a, a collector myself, most of us here are passionate collectors and, and hobbyists, do we have any, any real fear that the hobby of collecting the original pulps will dwindle? I mean, are, are we seeing a contracting community? Or do you think that these reprints will, in time, actually expand the, the group more? John, let's start with you um, and work down. I, I would actually hope that it would expand. Whether or not it's making it contract, um, I, I'm not quite certain. Um, <clears throat> I, the number of orders that I continue to get, the number of catalogs that I print, uh, is, is larger and larger in every single catalog that I do. So in some respects, I guess that's not necessarily uh, true, but the number of people actually buying from those catalogs, I think, has leveled off or actually decreased a little bit. So uh, that could be pricing, that could be you know what I'm offering, that could be you know many different things. So it's kind of hard to quantify. Well, you, you also have to be concerned. This is why you charge for a catalog and refund on an order because some people are just using your your price catalog as a price guide. You know, using it on the reference shelf, aren't they? Oh, I've, I've had you know a number of, of uh, the first uh, big catalog I put out. Um, yeah, it got turned into a. Uh, in fact, I walked into an antique mall. This was before uh, Tim Cattrall's thing, and you know, 
proudly in the reference, uh, reference section was my catalog back there as, as the so-called price guide. And I knew at that point um, that I, I just had to charge something because it was costing me too much money to give away. I, I think the impact of some of that is hard to gauge though because in the last number of years the method of getting the word out to people has changed enormously. When we first started collecting a few decades ago, you could scrape up a few catalogs from people here or there, you had ads in the backs of comics. Now with the internet, all of that has changed. The, the availability for collectors is greater now than it ever was before, because you can go online and search it. There are more shows now than there ever have been in the past that are related to it, but there's no more pulps per se, so they're getting spread a little bit thinner. So it's hard to see what the balance is of what is the available material, how many new people are coming into it, and how is it being affected by the new methods of tracking that stuff down? Because equally, the net has brought a lot of stuff out, but then is it also getting new people interested, in which case they're buying it up, and so it's hard to say where, uh, you know, where the quantities are. Tom, what's your sense of this? Uh, I would hope that it, all the reprints would bring a larger audience, or at least a larger uh, awareness of the market. Um, you know, if you wave a flag in a closet, nobody's going to see it. If you wave it outside and scream, people may think you're annoying, but at least people know you're there. So, you know, I, I would hope... <laughs> but I would hope that at least makes people more aware of the market, because as we all know, there's no more books being made. So to supplement the decreasing number of books, either through atrophy, through destroying, which anybody who's reprinted things, we know the damage that we cause, regardless of how much we may try to later recoup or cover up from, from that. There is damage that's caused to specific or sometimes high-priced items to reprint them. And uh, through the advance of technology, uh, anybody who's a collector, you know, I order things from overseas all over the place and things are shipped all over the world now. So, you know, all those things that used to be contained within our continental North America and uh, the UK are now shipped to New Zealand and Brazil and all over the world. So the contingency of material that used to be here for the collectors is now trying to encompass the entire world. So I hope that the reprints find somewhere to go and bring more people in. Yeah, I would say, uh, as someone who's not a full-time dealer, or, or uh, I would say a large-scale dealer, but as somebody who sells frequently as, uh, on eBay as well as here at the shows, I would say that, that there, is, there seems to be a general sense among the, those shoppers on eBay that they are beginning to be aware of, of more that's out there other than the titles, their narrow interests that they originally went to the internet to look up. In other words, you can't help, thanks to, to websites like pulp.net and some of the others, the various Yahoo groups and the Usenet news groups, even if you enter the hobby just looking for, say, shadow reprints or shadow pulps or Doc Savage or Robert E. Howard material, the fact is it's so easy now with the internet to, to reference so many different sites that you're bound to be exposed to a much wider range of material and I think that that, can, that should really help in the long run. I don't know if we're going to see it in the next two years, three years or five years, but I would think if the reprints keep up that we certainly should see more people drift into the hobby that will offset the attrition of our own group and let's face it, as, as hobbyists go, as collector groups go, we have a relatively small one and the fact that most of us know each other after all these years, as I mean, proves that point. So I want to throw a curveball to the guys. I want to ask them, let's start with you, Neil, and work down this end. Can I have to ask my watch back here? Uh, you can have your watch back when we're finished, Neil. Uh, what would be your, forget about commercial considerations, forget about what you think 
would sell well for you or something that is easy for you to do one way or the other. Each of the panelists, what is a, a reprint project, a title or a series or a character? What, what is something that you'd really like to do and say, boy, I wish this is what I really want to see back in print and I don't care if it sells or not. Let's start with you and work down. Hmm. That's a tough one. I, you mean speaking personally? Personally. Well, personally for me, uh, probably the favorite would be The Shadows. See those in reprint. Personally, I'm a fan of, of a faithful facsimile version because the, the original nature of the pulse has a lot of interest to me in terms of the ads, how they looked, how they were done, what they looked like when you picked it up at first. I don't care personally for reset text or redone illustrations because that's not really what I'm there for. I want some of the original experience, which is why Lee and I chose to go the replica route that we did with our own line. But that would probably be my first choice as far as seeing a project there. Second is one that we've been involved in for quite some time in the early years of Weird Tales, not so much because of the great reading, pardon me Bob if you're in the room, but, it's, uh, but because of the scarcity of those issues and the significance of some of that early material, the early Lovecraft and the change in the style of horror writing to what it became and what we know as now, I think there's a lot of historical significance to some of that material that actually exceeds the value of reading it, if that makes any sense. And you can sort of read some of them and go, oh, it's not great, but you can see what it had to offer and why it was important to what came after it. So that would probably be the, the two most significant ones for us. Rich, what's your dream project? Well, it's hard to say. I'm doing the spider. Uh, a couple years ago, I released Domino Ladies, and that was one I wanted to work on because I, I thought she was a character that was very overlooked. And a lot of people asked, why are you going to reprint Domino Ladies? But it actually did pretty well. Um, Ed Race. Oh, yeah, Ed Race. Well, you know, the only thing is now the Ed Race stories I include with the spider reprint. Otherwise, I probably would do a little more of those chapbooks. Uh, I would kind of like to dig through some of the spices and reprint in anthologies some of the series characters because I, I like the replicas, but I also like resetting the text and sometimes getting new art because I, I think sometimes that helps bring in new readers because I think if the only way you present it to them is as a replica, you're almost saying, well, this stuff is great if you keep it in the proper context. And I, I, that's fine, but I also think that sometimes there's a, you know, there's a reason to reset it and show the people, well, no, look, it can be presented as something new and still have appeal uh, on its own. I, uh, I don't know if there's really any project right now I'm dying to do. I would like to see maybe some replicas or reprints of Dime Detective or Black Mask done in their actual format because I think sometimes we don't quite realize it, it, it's almost like talking about classic television in the 1960s. People would rattle off their favorite programs and then one day I got a hold of an old TV guide and looked at it and I realized wow, in one evening you had to choose at 7.30 between either watching The Green Hornet, The Man from Uncle or you know something else and it was that way with the Dime Detective. Up until a few years ago, I had never actually owned a Dime Detective. When I opened it up and saw on the contents page, Raymond Chandler, Earl Stanley Gardner, Daly, and several others, all within one issue, then it just struck me what a significant pulp Dime Detective was. You know, I, I always assume that those authors are in every issue, but not all of them in one single issue. So. Yeah. No, and you know, I'd second that myself because Dime Detective, I mean, Black Mask is unquestionably uh, significant for its contribution to the hard-boiled genre, but Dime Detective 
has a lot of great stuff that has not seen nearly the exposure, mostly because they didn't generate the new guys of the stature of Hammett and Chandler, and even the black mask guys that they appropriated, Frederick Nebel and Gardner and later Carol John Daly, um, uh, they, they are, are more associated with the mask than with Dime Detective, but there's a lot of great stuff there. And if I had my druthers, that's one title that I would love to see, whether it was facsimile form or whether it was just as uh, uh, collections with reset type, trade paperback, chapbooks. I'd love to see entire issues of Dime Detective. Tom, what's your dream project? To see John do dusty airs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could pay for it then, and then he'd do it. <laughs> um, I don't know if I can speak objectively about all financial considerations aside. Anybody who's ever looked at my backlist will know I don't have any financial <laughs> considerations with some of the uh, obscure things I've done. Uh, when when the uh, the pulps were actually being published, the world was a much smaller place, not necessarily through population, but through uh, what was considered exotic locales and, and things like that, and uh, so much in science fiction and mystery and detective and hero things have been done. Uh, I have a soft spot for adventure fiction, and, and I would like to see more uh, adventure stuff, whether it's the adventure title itself proper be done or or uh, some of those more type of fiction. The, a lot of the authors that wrote that were very versed in, in uh, you know, different societies and cultures uh, of different places in the world and, and were extremely uh, gifted in manipulating the English language and, and many of them are lost and, and forgotten today. So I'd like to see some of those people either more recognized or just the, the, uh, the genre more, more recognized. Good. John? Uh, I'd like to have a project in which I'm not so ADD and not uh, to spread myself so thin doing 300 projects like uh, one I'm doing now, which I really wanted to do, and sort of got myself involved with because John Locke and Gene Christie were putting together something that was going to be for um, the entire thrill book. And I said, well, you got to make that a book. You can't just make it a CD and let people look at a, a TIFF image. you got to make it a book. And so um, we're trying to put together, albeit very slowly, mostly on my part, um, the, uh, what will probably be a three-volume set of, of throw book. Some interesting stuff, some horrid stuff, but some, some scare stuff nonetheless. And I really like it only because I'm such a Harold Hersey geek um, that, you know, i got to see where he began outside of the, uh, well, starting right there at the editorship at the throw book. Well, if nothing else, you can you can see from the tell by the responses. I mean, we have a tremendous variety and diversity of uh, not only the formats in which reprints are are presented and made available today, but also in the type of material that people want to see and would like to publish themselves. So I think it's a healthy thing altogether, and it's uh, something we should all encourage and and. It can be pretty costly if you want to keep up with everybody's reprints because there's an awful lot of them nowadays. But I think in the long run, if we all do that, it's going to stimulate interest. And sooner or later, the good stuff is going to seep into the population and everything is cyclical. And all the people who were introduced to, say, Doc Savage from the Bantam reprints of the 60s, maybe there will be a new generation uh, that will take to it again. And maybe there will be just enough of them to filter over and find places like PulpCon and uh, help keep our, our hobby fun and vibrant. With the closing minutes of our, our panel, I'd like to throw it open to you folks. Anybody who has questions for any of our publishers, either in their capacities as publishers or dealers or collectors, or if you just have comments, things, uh, your own favorite reprints. Will? 
So it's tough to say, yeah, we'll put a list in the back of, of available sources of this material and, and do everybody justice, including yourself. So that's, that's probably something that the copyright owner stipulates to the publisher. You've got to have right. a list of our fanzines and stuff. Right. Who else has got a comment? This is the point I'm from Galaxy mentioned. And we're uh, launching a new line of hover uh, books. I've been going around the last six months. And just to address the point about the new audience, um, one point just uh, reported today from the, um, the local times. She knew nothing about Pulse. And by the time of an hour touring around, and a lot of you were very gracious to just talk to her and give her a lot of information, I had no idea. It was her basic realization and that these are, this is the root of American um, popular entertainment. And when she had that realization, she was going to took a little blurb she was going to do on the scene make a major feature article, which should come out tomorrow, and then a photographer come over. Basically, her, she wasn't aware of what it was. You know, and when, as soon as she had the realization, she went, wow, now I really want to read this stuff and find out, you know, more about um, the pulse. It's Dean's time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Diggs, for that musical interlude. <laughs> one, one of the, yeah, that, yeah. The point that I think is, is real key when, you know, and... John made some reference to like I'm doing some of the bigger numbers when I went and spoke with uh, the buyer for Walmart. Um, when she saw some of Hubbard's Westerns, she read one of them. She was just her viewpoint was like this was the lost box of books in in the attic. So she said I'm going to take these big numbers because specifically the westerns because that's for public. And the thing I'm finding is that if we let people know what it is and, and get it to the right people to read, you know the published weekly in library journal when I showed them some of these covers, you think they would have already be familiar with it. And they just, the, the, the senior editor of library journal, she's just like, I can't believe this stuff. This is incredible. She just yeah. One of, the, one of the problems public collecting has always faced is that the majority of people on the street, so to speak, are not aware of what they are. Everybody knows what comic books are, everybody knows what paperbacks are, partly because they are still in one form or another available currently. Whereas with the Pulse, they've been extinct for a long time, and they aren't the sort of thing that you see just lying around in used bookstores anymore, or even in antique shops. So most people that you talk to aren't aware of what they were, or what was in right. them, and what they might be missing. Plus, the word pulp was used in the pejorative right. a lot over the last, since the Pulse died. So. Yeah, yeah I, I actually think, I mean, we're probably kidding ourselves if, if we if we believe that no matter how many reprints there are, that somehow there's going to be a huge awakening in the entire population as to the merits of Pulp Fiction. But there is, of course, the, the aspect that, and this is a, a topic for another panel, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people, including people who are fairly knowledgeable about American pop culture, who fail to realize the extent to which Pulp has contributed to our pop culture, not just in terms of specific characters, but in terms of the storytelling formula, that, that filtered down from pulps of the teens and the 20s into movies, into dramatic radio, uh, into slick fiction, and later even into television. So that's, that's a subject for, for another discussion. But I wish you guys well, and I, I hope your research uh, pays off for you because it'll, uh, it'll bring a lot more L. Ron Hubbard fiction uh, to the rest of us. Have we got, we got time for one or two more comments or questions? Over here. Yes, sir. This is not a question exactly, although I have questions and a comment to make. But first of all, relevant to the last few comments that have been made, I think, I don't know how many of you need this information, but let me try this. 
I'm taught writing of all sorts at Penn State from 1966 to roughly 1990. And uh, most of my students wanted to be writers. Some wanted very badly, some merely got whistled about. And they read a lot. And they're very interested in plotting stories and all that sort of thing. And again and again, I was staggered by the fact that I rarely hit anybody who knew about pop magazines. And very many times, I would bring pop magazines to class. I have a limited collection, but I have a pretty wide one. I've done westerns, and various things like this. And I hold them up. And by and large, the reaction was astonishment. They didn't know about it. They certainly didn't know that these were at wider. And uh, yet, well, one reason they're very much interested as writers, I'll be talking about that a bit tomorrow, was the fact that they were impressed by something I kept saying over and over again, that it gave writers in my day a chance to earn while they learned. Uh, this impressed them enormously. But the color on the covers, the inside illustration, was a new world to almost all of them, going back to the 1960s. They didn't know that. Now, uh, I just want to mention that there is a, a huge audience out there that has never heard of the pulse. On the other hand, there were teachers I knew at Penn State who would casually refer to pulp magazine writing or to pulp magazine thinking. And they said it contemptuously, as if the audience they were addressing knew what they were talking about. And again and again, I point out that the students did not know what they were talking about. It's kind of, it is kind of, I feel, a sort of a lost moment. And I, even though I endured by hell a lot of moments at home. All right, that's the comment. Now, the question, uh, or another more, another comment. I'm, I'm very much interested in reprints. I'm fascinated by what I see in reprints here, but I would buy them and read them for one reason only. I'm revisiting my boyhood. I'm revisiting my adolescence. And uh, I'm, I rarely buy a reprint uh, in an area where I haven't, I didn't do a lot of reading at one time. That, getting past that one more moment now. I have a question which is bothering me as a writer. Are these reprints uh, merely, what can I say, something, what are they on themselves? Is that um, just a cost of printing? Do the writers get anything? Do the publishers get anything? Uh, is there any, are these real businesses in the publishing sense of the word? I gather not. Yes, in terms of how much money some of us lose occasionally. <laughs> yes, in terms of how much money some of us lose occasionally. I think what you're trying to get at is, is it an industry similar to, as the pulse for an industry? No, it's infinitely smaller than that. 
Some of us are doing reasonably well, but in a very small way, because it is a very small market. So I think that's, that's where pulp publishing is now, and probably where it's always going to be. But I think the, I think the question specifically referred to matters of licensing and copyright. In other words, are the, the, guy, the writers who produce the work, many cases work for hire, are they compensated? And I believe, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but a lot of the reprints are public domain pulps, pulps which were not renewed, but the ones that uh, have copyrighted characters with estates attached, yes, there are licensing fees paid, and presumably the copyright holders. Uh, Realistically, though, most of the actual authors are deceased, so if the rights are owned, it's usually owned by another individual or by a company of some sort. Well, so, there are writers who have it left estates, which um, are still in the business market, so to speak, mm -hmm. of publishing. I don't know any estate, and I, I'm friendly with a number of people who run estates, that has, how shall I say, made anything out of reprint. But they usually make money out of movie sales, television sales, things like that. This is a whole area of concern. In, in some cases, I think people assume that, that families and estates and whatnot automatically own the rights to the material that their predecessors wrote, and that is not necessarily true. Rights renewals were more complicated in the past Last than the automatic assignment of rights now. So Burroughs, for example, copyrighted his material and owned it himself and was certainly a business-like person about it. A lot of the writers wrote their stuff, got their checks, the company owned it, the company did whatever it wanted within the end, and if it went belly up, a lot of the stuff became well, public domain. I know that most of the writers I knew at the time, myself included, sold all rights to their first few stories. And, but in almost all magazines, there was a check, Street and Smith, which bought all rights, then announced the policy of turning the rights back to the authors. And this happened elsewhere. One last thing, as long as I'm talking about this, I want to throw one other point. Um, I don't know how people here, how much time they have spent talking about or learning about what happened to the pumps. Uh, and I have detected, as somebody probably was saying this, but relatively new to this particular area, I have detected a kind of a yearning feeling that they will march again. The song will come back again. And I'm not very much awareness of the changes in uh, entertainment, the changes in distribution, the changes in uh, aesthetics, if you will, that caused the pubs to disappear. But, for example, um, back in the, 19, in the 1950, there was a tremendous loss in circulation of pulp magazines across the board. For two reasons. One, because the comic books came on very strong. Second, because the paper books came on very strong. And third, most of all, editors and publishers told me again and again because the American News Company had disappeared. And there's nobody distributing them anymore. I do know that the remaining science fiction magazines have faced declining circulations and they have they have no distribution. If somebody were to start a magazine distribution firm again, um, there'd be an awful lot of people who would like to own to. 
Well, I, I, hold, I hold no such illusions that the pulps would be riding high again. Uh, I, I hope that maybe we could start selling, I could start selling one, two, three thousand copies, but was quickly beat into the sense of no way, it's not going to happen. And publications nowadays, magazines are, are not doing well, newspapers are not doing well. The printed media in itself is not doing well. Reading and literacy is apparently declining <laughs> in spite of the availability of education and the printed right. word being available to more and more people. Right. So if you look at the younger generation, their entertainments are not largely reading-based. They are video-based, they are movie-based, and I don't think we are really going to see that change in our culture revert back to reading to that kind of yeah. extent. Unfortunately, it will be very nice if it did, but we can't see that in the future. Right. I, w I would love to keep going, folks, but there's somebody in the back with a hook coming this way. So we're going to have to get going for the auction. Thank you very much for attending. Please patronize all our publishers here. Their wares are available in the dealer's room. Thanks again. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps.